0: Thank God for the glorious gospel that we can sing about, that we can look to the Word, find it on almost every page of the Bible. So grateful that we can do that. We're going to begin with prayer and as the choir and orchestra leave the loft, I just want to say thank you guys. I really appreciate your hard work, your diligence to come and bless us, and we're glad that you're back together after the summer break, and uh, we'll be at least, uh, I think, once a month is what we shoot for, and it's always a blessing to uh, have them lead us as we sing his praises. We're going to pray and then get right into the Scripture. You see that uh, the conclusion of Nehemiah is a seven-point sermon. You see that from your outline. So uh, we're going to move deliberately, quickly through these and hopefully uh, have some, uh, some good application for us today. And uh, before we do that, we're going to pray. Uh, one of the things we're going to pray about is we're going to pray for Mark Dittmer. Mark, where are you? Right there. Stand up, would you? Everybody look back at Mark. Everybody who's a member of the church knows Mark and he's leaving uh, town this Friday to go back to Chiapas, Mexico, where he works with Greg and Michelle McClanahan. Kicker was just telling us about the uh, Kingdom Kids Christmas um, trip that's going to happen, where they distribute, how many backpacks with the gospel did you distribute last year, Mark? 20,000. Around the mountains, churches, little villages, all kinds of places that Many of those places are accessible only by foot, and they go back into these far, far reaches of this area, a hot spot for persecution, by the way. And so we want to pray for Mark, thank him for his time here, helping his family with the passing of his brother. And so we want to pray for him, pray for ourselves today. Father, we thank you that uh, we have just been singing about the, uh, the, the wonder of your blood spilt for us and about how that uh, as we approach the grave i was thinking of that last verse we don't sing it often but uh, when we come to that place we will still be singing those of us who know you and uh, we look forward to that day uh, and until that day we pray that you might guide us by your word and by your holy spirit to live out the implications of what we have been saved from and what we have been saved for. Lord, we pray for Mark, our dear brother, as he goes back today, and as he rejoins the team there in Chiapas and gets ready for the Kingdom Kids distribution this year. And I pray that you would give him God' speed as he goes and safety as he travels, but more than that, fill him with your spirit and help him as he does the incredible work that he does there. And we just love him and appreciate him, and thank you that you are going to go with him. Now, Father, as we come to this passage in Nehemiah, the last part of the book of Nehemiah, uh, that you would uh, help us to gain wisdom and instruction, that we would respond to what you tell us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For some of you who haven't been with us in this study of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah, As we've come through Nehemiah and particularly starting with chapter 10 and then coming back to chapter 13, we've been talking about spiritual faithfulness. And I just want to pose a question. I'll be posing several questions for us today, but why is spiritual faithfulness such a big deal? Now, I'll ask another question that is related. Why is spiritual faithfulness defection so hurtful. I think sometimes we read a passage like this, and we see that it happened a long time ago, and we don't bring it up to date. We don't apply it to ourselves and ask ourselves the question, why is it so important that I be faithful spiritually to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Why is it that when I defect, which I do on a regular basis, why is it so hurtful? Now, obviously, we're going to read through this passage as we come to each of the points. We're not going to read the entire passage beforehand. And you're going to see that it has a very specific application to marriage, to the marriage relationship. But this last section has a much broader application to the entire reality. Its message is the same as the Apostle Paul's. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And I could have stopped there. We'll look at this passage several times during the morning, during this sermon. But let's go on. Why, why is it that being unequally yoked... And by the way, this is not just about marriage, okay? Okay? We normally hear it just applied to marriage. This is about all of life and our life as followers of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that we are never, ever to be unequally yoked. That does not mean to not have relationships with non-believers. It means to come into a close, intimate relationship, a yoked relationship. And he gives several reasons that I I think it's just good that we remind ourselves of. He says, for what partnership, look at the words that he's using. These are all highly relational words. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Hey, just, just for fun, plug that into your marriage relationship. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness into your own life? Or what, here's another relational word, what fellowship has light with darkness? What, here's another relational word, accord has Christ with the devil, Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Those are all rhetorical questions. What's the intended answer? None. When you think of the Christian life, I say this over and over again because we tend to lapse into this understanding of the Christian life. We tend to look at it as a mechanical or a transactional kind of relationship. You do this, I'll do this, we'll make a contract, transactional, organizational, institutional, all the rest of that. I'm not negating that there is organization to the Christian life. But think of the Christian life as more organic, as relational, and then this passage will begin to come alive. It's not just setting down certain kinds of laws to get you to follow them. It has to do with your faithfulness and lack thereof to the Lord Jesus Christ. I I do this in a lot of my premarital counseling, I, I will ask this question. Some of you have heard this before. I'll, I'll turn to the guy at, at some point in time, and I'll ask him this question. When you're married, would it hurt you if your wife lied to you? Now, what do you think the guy says? He, well, yeah, yeah, it hurt, hurt me. Okay. Would it hurt you more or less if your wife was unfaithful to you. What is always the answer? Well, yeah. I said, why? You know, a lot of people think that all the commandments are just kind of the same. Why? Because it has to do not just with the keeping of certain commands, it has to do with a relationship. And the marriage relationship is to be always, we heard this last night, a wonderful, beautiful wedding. And Jim, you reminded us about this, that the marriage relationship is a picture of the relationship between God and His covenant people, between Jesus and His bride, the church. And when we begin to think of our walk with the Lord individually, in our marriages, family, and as a church, in this kind of a relational way... It's going to make a difference in how we live our lives in Christ. Now, we're going to walk through this passage. If you haven't read this recently, um, and if you just read it all in one setting, I I think you would come away with (laughs) the same thought I did when I read it the entire 13th chapter because it it, it is a solid, sound rebuke and there are some who would read this last section particularly you might be thinking what a downer it's just the opposite i think this is this is a perfect end to the book of Nehemiah. One of the reasons I think that is because God inspired it and he made it the end of Nehemiah. So therefore, it really is perfect. But when you begin to consider what it's about. First of all, here's why I think it's it's a great ending to the book of Nehemiah. It's reality. The entire 13th chapter is a picture of defection. And you'll remember some things. Nothing stays still. And that's true of your Christian life. It's the nature of a fire to go out. And that's why you have to keep it stoked. Jesus said, follow me. I shared this with you a couple of weeks ago. I'll remind uh, remind you of it right now, today. For those of you who have not been here, I'll tell you about it. Jesus said, follow me. And there's no standing still. Because if you stand still, you're going to be in trouble. I remember Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who who doesn't allow sin to come up beside him as he's walking. He, He knows what to do. He knows to reject that automatically. But if you begin to walk in the counsel of the wicked, then pretty soon you might get interested and you might stop and stand still in the way of sinners and finally you'll be sitting in the seat of scoffers or the scornful. So this can be just another sermon, which it is. Or this could be the reality of Jesus. And and I, I know most of you, and he has said, follow me, and you are, I, I know, seeking to follow Him, but I would not be surprised if among all of the different age groups there has been a little bit of defection this last week, maybe, or this last month, or maybe this last year, or maybe this last little while, and that is why we need that. So it's reality, okay? The, the last part of the 13th chapter, it's just reality. It's, it's where we live as followers of Jesus Christ. But the second thing is, this is a picture of God's love. Revelation chapter 3 says this, and Jesus was talking to a church. He he loved this church, the church of Laodicea. He said, I know your works. And and let me me share something with you. He said, I know that you're neither hot nor cold. Now, he says a lot of things between these two verses, He says, I would that you were hot or cold, but then he adds this, here's why I'm telling you this, here's why I'm challenging you to follow me afresh and anew, because those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. My 16-year-old grandson is driving now. And so I, I, I've tried to tell him, observe the warning lights. If a warning light comes on in the car, then observe it. So he, he has, he's told me, that's observing. And so we were going to take the car that he's driving out of, out of town on a, the, the guy's weekend, the, the father-son camp out this last weekend. And so he, he said, uh, pops the the warning light has come on, the tire pressure is low. I said, okay, let's get the gauge and let's, oh, here's the, this tire is pretty low. Let's look at it. And there was a shank, not a nail, a shank about this, this wide in the middle of the tread. So I took it down to the shop. I said, can you fix it? He said, well, we'll look at it. Picked it up. It had a new tire on it. He said, it's a good thing you didn't take it out of town because it was a shank about this long. And the end of the shank was rubbing against the, the wall of the tire, the, 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 the tread, the, the, the metal. And he said, if you'd been out on the highway, chances are it would have rubbed through. And, and you could have had a really bad experience. So what I'm going to give you in this few minutes I'm going to give you what God gives Israel and what God gives us, some warning lights. Specifically because this passage, again, it's about a broad kind of a a spectrum, but it is specifically about marriage. It really is. And so I'm going to give you about six warning lights that happen When God's people, and I'm going to narrow it down. There are a lot of non-believers who do this, obviously. But when God's people do not hold marriage in high esteem, in honor, there will be certain things that will happen. And Nehemiah finishes out his book by talking about those things. But we also find within the verses of Nehemiah 13 the last portion what we need to do about it so let's look at it if you got the outline there in front of you i don't have it on the slides i'm just going to because we're going to rip and run through this okay first point when marriage is not held in honor in high esteem there will be a tendency to be unequally yoked in marriage Chapter 13, verse 23, I'll I'll read these verses as we come to them. So you can look it up on uh, on your smart device or look at it in your Bible or just listen to the words. When marriage is not held in honor or high esteem, there will be the tendency to be unequally yoked in marriage. And by the way, a lot of other things as well. Verse 23 says, in those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now, let's go back and do a little review, just in case you need it. The book of Genesis chapter 2 tells us specifically, and I know you know this, but we need to be reminded of it, that it was God himself who united a man and a woman in marriage. In other words, marriage is a divine, not a human institution, So therefore, God has the right to define the terms of the institution of marriage. And he does. In the verse that we saw a few minutes ago and that we'll see again in just a moment, one of the things that he has said, one of the terms that defines Christian marriage is this. Do not be unequally yoked with non-believers. Now, look at verse 23. Are you looking at it? I'm going to tell you one thing that this is not saying. I've said this before, and you need to get it down, all right? This is not talking about so-called interracial marriage. There are some who have used this passage and passages like it to militate against the marriage between people who have different levels of melanin in their skin. There have never been, and there will never be, regulations or rules prohibiting marriage based on the color of skin. Now, I'm not going to go full woke on you. But those of you who are my age and maybe a little bit younger have lived through a day in the church where a statement like that would have gotten a pastor fired maybe even before the sermon was over. It's not what it's talking about. Unequally yoked is not a racial issue, it is a faithfulness to Christ issue. The women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab listen, they were not neutral. These were pagan, idolatrous, treacherous, sinful. People. Okay, I, I, I'm just trying to add adjective after adjective. And way back in Deuteronomy, God faithfully and lovingly warned Israel not to intermarry with the pagan religions all around them. You shall not intermarry. Could anything be more clear? And all through this time, don't do it giving your daughters to their sons, taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then, because I am a loving God and I'm a just God, I'm going to bring judgment. When you do that in disobedience, the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Malachi, a prophet who spoke at about this time in in the book of Nehemiah, he, he talked about this. We might need to go back and review some things that Nehemiah had to say Why then? Look look at this. Why then are we faithless? He's talking to Judah. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. How's that? For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he, the Lord, loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. And we're going to say more about this, but when you and I do not hold firmly to what God has revealed for us to do in terms of marriage, if we don't high, hold high in high esteem, in honor, the marriage covenant then we are not going to move forward with God's unmovable plan. And by the way, again, remember, you don't just stand still. There are forces rushing at us in our culture as we speak that militate that the church comes back to this, where we have strayed. Now, if we're on it, that's fine. But a lot of churches have strayed from this. Now, I know some well-meaning person will say, okay, we we're raising a generation of young people, and hey, pastor, I hear what you're saying, and that sounds good, but you can't control who you fall in love with. Is that fair? I'm not negating that. But you can control who you hang out with. Because, and I'll put a parenthesis here, unless you are going to have an arranged Marriage, you do know we've got several of those in within our church family, which, as I've heard those things described, I, I'm not so sure. That's not a pretty good idea. <laughs> I'm serious. Not just, well, you're trying to protect your children. I, so, but unless you're going to have an, uh, an arranged marriage, you're going to marry who you hang out with. And so just be careful and take this into account. Please, please, please. Okay, second thing. Told you we we're going to rip and run. Second thing. When marriage is not held in honor, in high esteem, children will be, watch this, more conversant with the world's theology and philosophy than with God's word. Wow. Is that really in here? Yeah. Look at verse 24. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. This is shocking. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Did you know that the world has its own theologies? Do you know that the devil has his own theology? Doctrines of demons, 1 Timothy talks about that. In the average home, then and now, who does the majority of the instruction? Period. The majority, who does? Come on, the mother. So here's a picture when you had these, pag- remember, these are this is, there's no neutrality here. And that's where we get off sometimes, well, these are just good people. No, they really weren't. And they're not going to teach neutrality to their kids. They're going to teach them the language, the pagan language of Ashdod. They're going to teach them the pagan language of the Ammonites and the Moabites. And they're not going to teach them the language of Zion. If you Back then, if you did not know Hebrew, how are you going to understand and read God's word, the Torah? And the answer is you couldn't. So what does that have to do with today? Listen, they were raising, this is why Nehemiah got so upset, one of the reasons. They were raising a generation of of those who could not understand the things of God, but only the language of the unredeemed. Language is not neutral. All around our young people, our teenagers, our children, language is coming. Where is it coming through to the people in your sphere? TV? Do kids even watch TV today? They stream. Okay. So the language of the unredeemed is coming through streaming, it's coming through social media platforms, it's coming through a number of different things. And that's why it is no small thing and it is no small task for the church to be very intentional that we are helping our children, our young people, be conversant with the language of Zion, if you will, with the Word of God. And that's why unapologetically, if there is curriculum, we've done this, that begins to to waver a little bit, that begins to be weak in certain areas, we get rid of that curriculum By the grace of God, we've got people that are looking at these kinds of things so that we can put curriculum in that is going to be Bible-based. But ultimately, it doesn't start here at Heritage Baptist Church. Where does it start? In the home. In the teaching of our children. Uh, we, We made a quick trip to Little Rock this weekend, found out it was Grandparents' Day, for our youngest grandson, Blake. And so we went over on Friday morning, had a wonderful lunch with him at school of school pizza. <laughs> 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 Cardboard with round things on them, like <laughs> supposed to be pepperoni, I think. I don't know. <laughs> had, a, had a great time. But, but here's what I'm going to say. On Saturday, we had to leave early and come back and... Uh, just sitting there, and Julia asked this question. She said, hey, Pops, what does covetousness mean? She's 14, same as Ziva. Here she's asking, and I said, oh, well, covetousness is one of the commandments. Do you know the commandments? I said, Julia, do you know the commandments? So in about five minutes, I walked her through the The ten-finger method that we've gone over many times to help you say the Ten Commandments in order, only one God, no idols, no bad words, don't take God's name in vain, worship, commandment on worship, remember that, honor your father and mother, no murder, purity, that's what God wants, no stealing, no lying, and no coveting. And we, we just talked about that for a minute. And I thought to myself as we left, it's just a small thing. And I'm just, I'm just her granddad, you know, and we do this with our, our kids that are here. And, and just a small thing. But that's the kind of thing when your kids ask, that we, we feed into them the truth of the Word of God. And by the way, they need to see it in your life, moms and dads. Okay? Grandparents. I know they do. I know they do. But I I heard a guy, an old preacher by the name of Al Martin, say this one time, if your children had no Bible, they ought to be able to know the gospel by how their daddy treats their mom. They ought to be able to see, oh, you know, I've never heard how, how much Jesus loves the church. But when I see how much my dad loves my mom, I want to know a love like that. They ought to be able to see it when they look at their mom. Oh, I've never heard about how the church is to line up with and obey and submit to to the Lord Jesus Christ, but I watch my mom work with my dad, and I see that as an example, and I want to be a part of that. See, a lot of it is not only what we say, but it's how we live it out. Third point. We're talking about marriage holding marriage in high honor high esteem where it is not held in honor there will be no legacy of biblical separation last night got to uh, go to a beautiful wedding jim jackson officiated and and i i just so appreciated what he was telling the young couple and and we do this in probably all of our ceremonies. He was going through the marriage vow, and he was talking about no compromise. There's no compromise. This is absolute. You're, you're Remember last week when I made the statement last week, leaving all others for him alone, leaving all others for her alone? That's what the call to follow Jesus Christ is about. Again, Going back to 2 Corinthians a little bit further along, therefore go out from their midst. Can you believe that's in the New Testament? Quoted from the old, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Separation is an important thing and not compromising. Now, that's going to be a a lived out, you're going to have to flesh that out on your own, but just make a commitment not to compromise with separating from the world and from sin you may think you're going to win when you compromise you can't win when you compromise with sin okay did you hear what i said i think it was chuck swindoll when i was studying told a really cute story that illustrates the reality. You cannot win when you compromise with sin. It was about a guy that was hunting for a bear, and he came upon a bear, raised his rifle. The bear saw him. He said, whoa, whoa, wait, wait just a minute. He's was talking bear, okay. <laughs> he said, hey, wh- wait, wait just a minute. Uh, l- let's talk about this. He said, well, what, 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 is your, what is your purpose here today, Mr. Hunter? He said, well, I I want a fur coat. I'm looking for a fur coat that I can wrap myself in. And the bear said, well, you know what? I'm looking for a full stomach. Let's sit down and talk about it and see if we can compromise. Well, in about 30 minutes, the compromise was reached. The bear walked away with a full stomach And the man had his fur coat. But he didn't win. I'm old, but I'm, I'm still learning that you can't compromise with sin. You've got to separate. And that's why the unequally yoked Theology will serve us well. Let's look on to number four, okay? Number four. When marriage is not held in honor, oh, this is, they didn't learn from history. Here, Nehemiah is going to give them a historical lesson that they can learn from. They all know this story. When marriage is not held in honor, future generations will likely experience destruction. I added a couple of words to that after I wrote the outline. Destruction. Dissolution and degradation. And if you don't know those words, just look them up. Destruction, dissolution to dissolve, and degradation to degrade. Nehemiah goes back to the story of Solomon. In verse 26, look at this. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? By the way, does anybody remember how many... Foreign women, he married 700, and he had 300 concubines. Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by his God. God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Okay, I I talk about, you know, when separation and unequally yoked a lot with our young people. Solomon was old enough to know better. So come on, older people, oldest people, don't think it can't happen to you. And it says Solomon fell away. Oh, it's just horrible. He started worshiping gods, built monuments to gods that celebrated the murder of children. Redefining marriage. I thought, oh my, that's pretty contemporary. And then it goes on to say, by the way, if you want to look up, not now, but look up this story, it's in 1 Kings chapter 11. God came to him and said, because you've done this, Solomon, This is why the application of this, future generations will likely experience destruction, dissolution, and degradation. He said, not in your lifetime, but in your son's lifetime, the kingdom is going to be torn in two, and you see the mess that happened under the two-kingdom system. Number five, when marriage is not held in high esteem and honor, perversion will be normalized. then institutionalized, then codified into law. Verses 27 and 28. Sin is never benign. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil? Now, Notice what he calls this, great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women. This was not a small thing. One of the sons of Jehoiada, The son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanbalat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. It's great evil. Going back to the book of Malachi chapter 2 again, a little bit later on from the verse we read a few moments ago. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in him. And when marriage is not held in honor, evil, the perversion of marriage, that's that's why in our documents we have a statement on the sanctity of marriage. So it'll be clear to those who come into the life of the church and who look us up online or whatever the case may be that we're seeking, humbly, humbly seeking to to have the Word of God direct our thoughts about this because it is no small things. I I can't remember who said this, but it was in one of the commentaries or or wherever I read it. It was a great way, a great turn uh, of a phrase. Fallacies don't cease to be fallacies because they become fashions. Number six, when marriage is not held in honor, there will be an indifference to true worship. Verse 29, remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. You say, well, now wait, wait, wait. Isn't, isn't marriage a private thing? And, and again, I'm going to refer back to the to the ceremony last night. Jim, thank you. Thank you for pointing out something that if you just go to any regular secular wedding ceremony, they're never going to say this. Jim did last night. He said, it's not just you two. There's always a third person in the marriage, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a private matter. God is witnessed. Do you see it right here? The Lord has witnessed your marriage. He's taking note of your marriage. Are you holding it in high honor? Are you treating your marriage like it is you and your spouse and God? And it's a holy triangle. By the way, what happens when that is not done? I see it in the life of the church all too often. Now, I I, I know this is speaking of the men. There's an application for the women, but Peter wrote it to the men for a reason. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge or in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Stop there. What in the world does the weaker vessel mean? Does it mean she's weaker spiritually? I don't think so. Intellectually? <laughs> really? I know some of you guys and your wives. Uh, that's not the case. No, no, no. Uh. Uh-uh. Physically? Ah. Oh, okay. Well, maybe we can argue that she's weaker physically. We're not talking about curling. Fifty pounds. Watch a woman's physical endurance. Status and position? No. The weaker vessel here means that she is vulnerable and she is valuable. Heard the illustration once that she's like a fine piece of china. And not a styrofoam cup. What do you do when you're finished with a styrofoam cup? Crumple it because you're a man. (laughs) Throw it in the trash. What do you do with a fine piece of china? You handle it carefully. You do not put it in the dishwasher if you value your life. (laughs) You wash it by hand. You dry it. You put it in a special place. That's what this means. And I've seen this over and over again when men do not treat their wives with this kind of honor that the marriage covenant is supposed to have. What is the outcome? Their prayers are hindered. Their spiritual life suffers. And nine times out of 10 when I am aware of this kind of thing happening, they're gone. They're not even in church, let alone following the Lord. So that's the six points. Did we get to the last one? What are the appropriate responses to failure to hold marriage in high esteem? Let's read them, okay? Here's what you're supposed to do. And this is in verses 25, 28, and 30. And I confronted them, listen carefully, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, that's a good start, (laughs) and I made them take an oath in the name of God saying you shall not, he made them take an oath saying you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves and then we've already read this, one of the sons of Jehadiah, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. He, he's the high priest's grandson. I chased him away from me. And then the last thing he did, he said, I cleansed them from every foreign, everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priest and the Levites, each in his work. You know, if, if you read something like that in the language, we bring it up and we pack it into what we experience a lot of times you're not going to get what, what, what the author really means about this. What, what it is saying is Nehemiah confronted not only the sin, but the sinner. He chased out sin and the sinner. And finally, he cleanses everything for him. And if there is anything that we need to be, and I'll speak to the men first because this is to whom it is written first, but to all of us, mothers and fathers for our children, grandparents for their grandchildren and on down, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. You know, if this had been a minor infraction, this would have been overkill. In fact, if this had been a minor infraction that we're seeing here, it would have been abuse. Like when, when a kid knocks over milk at the dinner table by accident and the parents explode. It's World War III. That's overkill. It's also not as a certain preacher. Wow. Wow. I read how he exposited this. He made it about, seriously, he made it about the people obeying and submitting to his authority and that the leaders had authority to punch out anybody who didn't submit. That is an abuse, and that's an abuse of Scripture. This, listen to me, this was not a carnal outburst. When it says he cursed them, this was not profanity. He was referring back to Deuteronomy 28 and calling down, if you're going to disobey, then these are the curses that God will bring on you. He was lovingly warning them, church. Plucking out beards and hair, shaving them off, was a way in the ancient world of showing shame. Nehemiah was trying to get them to see that what they were doing was incredibly shameful. This was a reasoned, great, zealous stand against a great, defiant, open sin in the camp. You know what I, I thought of as I was coming to the end of this? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Nehemiah was their best friend. The one who loves you the most will tell you the most truth about yourself. Nehemiah was willing to do that. Look at the quote from John MacArthur on the very end, and th- this is why it, it, it is vital that we do this. Listen, church discipline is not fun. It's hard work. It, it's just, it's not fun, but it is necessary at times. Here's why. No church is healthy enough to resist contamination from persistent sin in its midst. Any more than the healthiest and most nutritious bushel of apples can withstand contamination from even a single bad one. The only solution in both cases is separation. We haven't read all the verses. We end with verse 31. I love this. To whom was Nehemiah looking? For his ultimate redemption in what he was doing. I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Now listen to this. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Huh. Who else said Remember me, Jesus. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. What did the thief bring to offer Jesus? Nothing, nothing but his sin. If you're here today and you've heard all of this and you realize, well, how, how do I pull that off? Well, you become a follower of Christ. If you're a child of God, You are born again by the Spirit of God. You have the Holy Spirit. And you can begin progressively, progressive sanctification, to begin to live this kind of thing out. But it has a starting place. And the starting place is right where Nehemiah says, Remember me, O my Lord, for good. Not for the good that I did, but ultimately, remember me for good. For those of us who know the Lord... The upshot, the story of Nehemiah, rededication, defection, a call back to rededication is to take the truths, all of the things that are problem, apply the solution that God gives us and continue by the power of the Spirit and the Word to walk with Him. Father, I thank You that You do give us Your Word. It speaks to us. I pray that uh, anything that I have said that is in any way distracted from your truth would be put aside, uh, people would be discerning, and I pray that your word, by the power of your holy Spirit would 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 impact lives, first of all, those who do not know you as Savior and Lord, grant them repentance, Father, grant them faith, they might see the Savior, they might see their own sin, and Jesus and his death on the cross as payment for sin. I pray that they would come into a life-altering relationship with you, the living God, through faith in Jesus Christ. For those of us who know you, uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to hold marriage and the marriage covenant in the highest regard, the highest of honor, the highest esteem, so that we can honor you and be a blessing not only to ourselves, but also to the generations to come. Now, Father, help us as we respond to your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.